else. This morning we begin John chapter 11. And then I have to say, this is, it is a yay. It is an exciting chapter. We all know what goes on in this chapter. Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead. And before we break open the word and dive in, I think it's important that we pause because we've seen Jesus, through our study of the book of John, do many miracles. And he's been performing miracles all over Jerusalem and Judea and the different areas that the Lord had taken him. And I want to stop because I want to make note that there, were, there are some in our culture, there are some in our community, and there are some even in our world today that would seek to dismiss and discredit the physical miracles Jesus did. But when we approach a chapter like John chapter 11, it's important that we recognize that these miracles, these events truly happened in real space and real time. This is physical evidence of the deity of Jesus and his power over death. And I want to, as a congregation, unite around that reality that Jesus indeed performed miracles that were visible, that were physical, and that were real. And in fact, this miracle that we're going to witness in John chapter 11 is the very miracle that would turn the Sanhedrin against Jesus. An act that would ultimately lead to Jesus' own execution. One of the greatest miracles, if not the greatest miracle, apart from his own resurrection from the dead, would ultimately be what the Sanhedrin would use against him in his trial. Before we open to John chapter 11, let's take a moment and pray that God would superintend over the study of his word. Lord, we come together on Sunday mornings and we surround your word. And we do so with the anticipation knowing that you intend to work and that you're going to work because your spirit is alive and it's active. Lord, we are a needy people. We're in need of the grace and mercy of your Son every day. And Father, we're thankful that as a congregation, you give us the opportunity to surround your word and to reveal to us our own needs, our own inadequacies, our own deficiencies. And you can affirm and you can assure us that though we are weak, you are strong. And Lord, today... And throughout the next number of weeks, as we go through John chapter 11, we're going to see the power of your Son over even death. And how hopeful that is for us as a congregation and as a people that go through difficult times and difficult seasons in life. That your Son conquered death. Father, as we surround your word this morning, we pray that that would be a hopeful truth for us. One that we could carry from this place and that you would use to help us to grow in a greater love for you and a greater love for those you put in our pathways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. Now, a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany. The village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment 
and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Bethany is a short two-mile walk from Jerusalem along the road that leads to Jericho. So to give you an idea of where we're at here, we've talked about raisin, rope, peanut, and here we are at the very top western corner of the peanut. That's where Jerusalem is. And it's about a two-mile walk from Bethany where Jesus is back towards Jerusalem where they had just wanted to stone him, to arrest him. It was Mary and Martha's hometown. It was the same Mary who would anoint Jesus' feet. And we'll cover that account in John chapter 12. It's one of my favorite accounts in all of the Gospels. Their brother Lazarus has fallen ill. The message that they send to Jesus in verse 3 is a foreshadowing of one of the motivations for this miracle that Jesus will perform. Why did Jesus do this? What was motivating him? What was compelling him to do this? Verse 3, Lord, he whom you love is ill. The word love here indicates a brotherly love. This was a family. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were a family to whom Jesus was closely tied and knitted to. He loved Lazarus as a person would love their very own brother. I don't know how that looks in your family, but in my family, that can be <laughs> a little outrageous sometimes. When Jesus catches the news of Lazarus' illness, his response is strikingly similar to what we find in John 9 when Jesus heals the man who was born blind from birth. You remember the disciples had asked Jesus about the man who was born blind? They said, Who sinned, this man or his parents? That he was born blind. You remember how Jesus answered them in John chapter 9? It was not that this man sinned or his parents, 
but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And upon hearing this news of Lazarus' death, Jesus says in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. And what he means by saying that is that the final outcome of what is happening to Lazarus here in his illness would not be his ultimate death. Something difficult, yet something great and miraculous is about to happen in this chapter. And the result of what is going to happen will be, as Jesus says in verse 4, look at the end of verse 4, for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And in this, Jesus reveals the first motivation for performing this miracle. Jesus' first motivation in performing this miracle, why he is doing this, is because he desires for his Father to be glorified, and he desires for himself to be glorified. Truly, So that, as Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Why is Jesus performing this miracle? What are his motivations? Why is he doing this? One is for God's glory and his own glory. God will be glorified in this miraculous event. And so too will Jesus And ultimately, God will use this miraculous display of Jesus' power over death to purposefully accomplish something in the life of the disciples. These miracles were not willy-nilly things that were just accidentally happening. Jesus walking along the path one day and out of nowhere thinking, oh, I'm going to heal this person. These miracles all had a purpose. The Father had a reason for everything that the Son did. Everything that Jesus did was done with purpose. And so too will it be with this miracle. If his first motivation is for the glory of God and for his own glory, his second motivation is revealed in verse 5. Take a look at the beginning of verse 5. Now Jesus, what? Loved. Verse 3, Jesus, the man whom you love, is ill. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So if the first motivation, if the first reason that Jesus is performing this miracle is for his Father's glory and his own glory, then the second motivation behind this miracle is love. The love of people. Jesus here in John chapter 11 is living and acting in the same manner that he calls us to live and to act. To be motivated by the glory of God and the love of others. This is church and should be the pattern for our lives. It was the pattern for Jesus' life. That he would do all things for God's glory motivated by love and again this is not some wishy-washy compulsive emotionally motivated love this is a love that's deliberate and it's careful 
Not a love defined or ordered or even accepted by the non-believing world, but a love that is sacrificial. The world would say this, if faced in a similar circumstance, and maybe many of us would say this, but the world would say, Jesus, drop everything and run. Lazarus is about to die. Go. Get out. Go to him now. He might die. Go do something. Don't you truly love him? Don't you truly love his sisters? But Jesus' love is motivated by his desire to do the work that God has given him to do exactly the way that God desires for him to do it. And so what does Jesus do? Does he go right away? He waits, doesn't he? Look at verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill... He stayed how long? Two days longer in the place where he was. Motivated by the glory of God and his love for Lazarus and his family, Jesus does nothing. Immediately. The reasons for Jesus' waiting are twofold. First, he's waiting on the Father's perfect timing for this miracle he cannot go he can't go and help Lazarus he can't go and heal him he can't go and help him unless it's according to the father's will and he knows the father's will and his plan perfectly second he is waiting so that the miracle could not be misconstrued misinterpreted or misunderstood as simply some kind of resuscitation Lazarus maybe wasn't really dead maybe he's not really dead maybe he he was just sick and he was sleeping and Jesus just showed up and did some CPR and bloop up he came so he waited Lazarus needed to be truly dead truly buried remember the words they used to describe Lazarus later in John we'll get to him he stinketh King James Version he stinketh. So Jesus waited. And then, at exactly the Father's timing, he sprang into action. And now, I think we should pause because some might say, wouldn't this miracle have put incredible pressure on Jesus and his ministry? I mean, honestly, think about this. All of a sudden, he reveals himself to be a person who has the ability to bring a dead person back to life. Now put your shoes, put yourself in the shoes of the people living with Jesus at that time. If someone that you knew were sick and you thought you had a relationship with Jesus and were a friend of his and this person was about to die, would you not want to go to Jesus and have him do the same thing? That Lazarus' family did. But we cannot forget that this miracle is happening very, very late in Jesus' earthly ministry. And perhaps it was God's intended purpose for this exact reason. Jesus would soon be arrested. He would soon be put on trial. It's further evidence that God's timing for this miracle was perfect in the overall timeline of Jesus' ministry. But I've heard this. 
There's another camp out there that has said this. How was it loving for Jesus to wait until the end of his earthly ministry to show his power over death? Ooh. My eyes get big when I heard that question. In other words, why didn't Jesus start raising the dead sooner? Why didn't he start sooner? And to that I would say, again, Jesus is acting in perfect step with the will of the Father in everything that he does while on earth. And, and, and you and I, as we sit here today, we can only imagine the circus that would have surrounded Jesus' ministry if right from the beginning he started raising people from the dead. Could you imagine? And remember, they forcibly had already, for smaller miracles, wanted to take him and forcibly make him king. Imagine what they would have tried to do to him if early in his ministry they understood and saw and realized this power. And I would say this, there are things that we will never understand about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit on this side of heaven. And when we don't understand and have clear answers and where the Scripture's silent and things, I think it's probably best for us to be silent and lean back on faith. The Bible says this in Proverbs 25.2, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search things out. Church, we don't need all the answers, nor should we. In fact, I would say getting all the answers is often for our own glory. It's often for seeking our own glory, our own benefit. Jesus calls us to believe. And you remember Jesus' attendance at the feast and the festival in John chapter 7? Just as Jesus' attendance at the feast in chapter 7 would not be at the timing of his brothers. Remember what his brothers said? Go now! Go now because now's the best time. More people will believe. And Remember, he didn't go at their timing. He went at the Father's timing. And so too would Jesus' attendance at Lazarus' death not be on the timing of man, but on the perfect timing of God. And so when the time was right, and all who the Father wanted to be present for Jesus' miraculous resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus acted. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. Let us go to Judea again. Back towards the city where he had, they had just tried to arrest him. They had just tried to stone him. Are we really going to go back there again, Jesus? Do you really want to go back towards that danger? Jesus' perfect love cast aside their fear. And as their shepherd, he's going before them. He's leading the way as a marked man. Jesus does not fear man or what man can do or will do to him. His behavior is never motivated by fear. But instead, Jesus shows incredible courage over and over and over again throughout his ministry. In the face of certain death, he moves towards danger, motivated by the love of his brother Lazarus. He's willing to lay down his own life for the sake of Lazarus's. Why? Why? Look at Jesus' answer in verse 9. Jesus said, 
Are there not 12 hours in a day? Why is Jesus willing to do this? Why is Jesus willing to lay his own life down for the sake of Lazarus? Because the work that God had given him on earth was not yet finished. There was more for him to do. Jesus had said before in John chapter 9, verses 4 to 5, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And he would reiterate again in John chapter 12, verse 35, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. And to the Romans to, and to the Jews, the day was divided into two 12-hour time slots. The first 12 for working, where there was light, and the second 12 for resting, when there was darkness. And it's safer to walk with Jesus by day, no matter what man might be plotting. Jesus continues, look at verses 9 and 10. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. Remember, he had said, I am the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Essentially, what Jesus is saying to his disciples and his followers here is, stop your fearing. Don't be afraid. Walk in the light. As long as the Father has work left for me to do on earth and for you to do on earth, you are safe from the schemes of man. That's for us, church. They cannot get to us. Matthew chapter 10, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. They are fearful to go back to Judea with Jesus. And their fear is understandable. It had to be scary walking with Jesus around people who wanted to kill him, wanted to murder him, wanted to stone him. Guilt by association. He wants to alleviate their fears. His motivation of love and his desire to glorify the, strong, the Father is stronger than this motivation of fear that was evident in his disciples. Are we really going back to that place, Jesus? Everybody hates us there. Nobody wants to go to a place where people hate them and dislike them and want to stone them. Church, what an application for us to reflect on. To not allow the fear of man to dictate to us how and when we do the work of God. And isn't there a lot of fear in our culture today? 
I don't know. It's, it's out there. I think there's a lot of fear. I think there's fear of loss. Material loss. Physical loss. I think that for many of us, we face a fear of rejection. We're afraid of what people might think. That we might be rejected. That we might be cast out. We might be seen as some kind of religious zealot. That's okay. I'd much rather go and be with the one that can raise the dead than be with the world. I don't care what they think of me. How about a fear of inadequacy? Do you ever feel inadequate? I do. A lot. Don't measure up. Not good enough. Not as good as this person over here or that person over here. And there's fear. Fear of the unknown. What ifs? There are all those what ifs out there. And what if some days they conquer us? They're like handcuffs. God's calling us to do something great, and the what ifs come in and lock us up. We can't do it. Sometimes we're motivated by fear, myself included. Our own insecurities. How about a fear of failure? What if I mess up? Boy, I wrestle with that one. That one gets me almost every day. What a great place to be when we know that we can't do it. And that we're not adequate. And that we don't know all the answers. And that we will be rejected, but we've been accepted. And we will face loss, but every loss that we face, Paul counted as gain. In the all-surpassing knowledge of what? Knowing Jesus. Friends, church, Those who are walking by the day on occasion must cross the paths of shadows. There is going to be difficult times. There is going to be times where fear motivates us. When when we fail to be motivated by love. When we fail to be motivated by the glory of God. When we walk through difficult seasons that are dark. Though that we would... Look at the example of Jesus when the shadows come. We would cross through them with courage and boldness, trusting that Jesus, the light of the world, is going to see us through as we walk in His light. When we are doing the will and work of God, we are walking in the light of Christ. And even when there are moments of difficulty and darkness, He gives us the light and the strength to see. Mm. However, there are many who believe that they are working the works of God, but they're actually fumbling around in the darkness because the light is not in them. Right? Lord, Lord, look at all of the great things we did for you. Away from me. I never knew you. And here's Jesus moving towards death confronting the grief and sadness that often accompany it. It's not always easy. It's not a, hey, look at me, Instagram kind of ministry. Yet he's motivated by his Father's glory. And he's guided by his love from Martha, Mary, Lazarus, and their family. And he compels his disciples to go with him. And as I was reading this passage this week, this verse from Ecclesiastes came to mind. Actually, I couldn't remember where it was from. I had to Google it. Google's good for some things. All I could remember is this line. 
It is better to be in the house of mourning. And I thought about Jesus in this situation. Look at verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Jesus is calling his disciples, his followers, to walk with him towards grief, towards affliction, towards mourning, towards sickness, towards death, towards loss. And in this, the light of Christ would see them through and he would be glorified. Take a look at verse 11 to 16, how Jesus bids them to come with him. After saying these things, he said to, said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I want to go awaken him. I love how the disciples respond. Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. And Jesus was really speaking of his death, but they thought he meant that Lazarus was taking a rest. And Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us, grow, let us go that we may die with him. Jesus starts here by using a euphemism. You know what a euphemism is? A euphemism is a nice way to say a difficult thing. Some people have the gift of using euphemisms. I don't. <laughs> Many of the mentors the Lord placed in my life don't. They just come right out and say the difficult thing. They don't try to be nice. Jesus is trying to be nice here. Look, I, I don't know if he didn't want to startle his disciples, if he didn't want to alarm them, but he's trying to be gentle with them and explain the situation that Lazarus is in. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. In their minds, this was a good thing. In the minds of the disciples, well, Jesus, if he's sleeping, if he was sick and he's sleeping, that's good, right? When any of us get sick and get ill... We want to take a rest, and what does that rest usually do? We wake up and we usually feel better. This is a good thing. Now remember, everything Jesus is doing here is for his Father's glory and for his disciples' good. He's being motivated by his love for all that are involved, and so now he must tell them plainly. They don't understand him. Lazarus has died. And in breaking this news to them, Jesus has already in his mind anticipated the question they would have regarding why didn't we go sooner? Or why didn't you do more? He's already anticipating that response because isn't that the response that most of us would have had? Jesus, why didn't we go when we could do something? We could have gone sooner. We could have gone earlier. For your sake... For your sake, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. There is a lot in this verse. It was for their sake that Jesus was not present at Lazarus' passing. Perhaps if he would have been present, Jesus would have prevented his death. 
Were that to happen, his disciples would have never witnessed this incredible miracle. Jesus was not there. His physical presence was void so that they might believe. And doesn't it have echoes of our monthly memory verse in it? We won't read the whole thing. But these things are written so what? You might believe. Everything Jesus does. All these works. So we, church, might believe and have life. The works of Jesus were used of God to draw many sons and daughters into glory. I'll say that again. The works of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, were used of God to draw many sons and many daughters into glory. Many of us sit here today because of the testimony of what Jesus did in the Gospels. All of us sit here today because of the testimony of what Jesus has done in our lives. Purposefully, He was absent from this event for the disciples' good. Purposefully, He was absent from this event for Mary and Martha's good. Purposefully, He was absent from this event for Lazarus' good. He's a dead man. So were we. He's purposefully absent so that the magnificent glory and power of God might be put on full display for both the believing and the non-believing world to see. And now, the time is ripe for His presence. It's time to go, and Jesus bids them, come. And isn't it fascinating, of all the disciples that convince the other disciples to go along. Of all the, it could have been Peter. Remember Peter? He always was quick to put his foot in his mouth. Right? Let's go, Jesus. Let's do it. It wasn't Peter. Or how about John, the writer of the gospel, who, who's known for his compassion and caring spirit? No, it wasn't John. It wasn't Nathaniel, one of his earliest disciples. It wasn't Philip, who we met in John chapter 1. But Thomas, the doubter himself. And many scholars believe that John and Thomas shared a close relationship because the other gospel writers simply list Thomas' name along with the other disciples. But if you follow Thomas' narrative, it's in John's gospel where Thomas' narrative is most unpacked, where we learn the most about the kind of person Thomas was. Nonetheless, it's Thomas who speaks some very prophetic words. Let us go. That what? That we may die. That we may die with him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous quote in his masterpiece, The Cost of Discipleship, quote, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. End quote. And Thomas is not being cynical here. He's not being sarcastic. He is showing forth his boldness and his courage. He is willing to walk towards the shadows, into the darkness and the unknown, with the presence of the light of the world. And though it wouldn't be immediately imminent, all of the disciples, save for one, would die with Jesus. Perhaps not with Jesus physically present, 
But let's not pretend for one moment that Jesus was not with them in their deepest moments of despair, in their martyrdom, in their murders that they all faced. Luke chapter 9, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For the disciples willing to follow Jesus back towards danger, back towards Judea, they're going to experience in church over the next few weeks, we're going to see and experience a miracle unlike any before in the history of the world. Witnessing the power of one who could conquer even death. So our question, how might our lives look in light of these realities. Church, I think the application today is clear. Walk in the light, motivated by love, not motivated by fear. Looking at the fears of this world, the fears of inadequacy, the fear of loss, the fear of rejection, the fear of failure, and realizing that the light of Christ is so much stronger and so much brighter than all of those fears. Living as Jesus lived, motivated for God's glory and motivated by our love for our brothers and sisters. Church, are we willing to lay down our lives and go even when it's difficult? As we reflect on these realities today, we're going to take some time this morning and enjoy communion together. And I would invite our elders to move to the back to prepare